What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Today we have Dave McConey. Dave, you you Dr. Dave McConey? Are we? What's the prefix here? Yeah, I mean, you don't have to call me doctor, but, but <laughs> call yes, me I Doc. Am. Got it. Okay, okay. <laughs> Doctor Dave McConey here. Excellent. Um, he is the host of the Brains and Gains podcast. It's a a podcast that I listen to a ton. It's had a lot of people that I think uh, extremely prominent in the industry. You guys have had some really, really good chats on there. And I always feel like, you know, people who listen to my podcast, uh, Brian, my friend, Brian, Brian Borstein is a mutual friend of ours. That I've had on the podcast multiple times talking about mostly nerdy hypertrophy shit and you, him and Abel, I don't know Abel's last name. Uh, you guys get on the podcast a couple of times a year, I guess. And you guys like shoot the shit about stuff. And it's Very really nice. fun to see you guys with like just slightly different perspectives on stuff. So I feel like we'll have a, if you got as a listener, if you like, like the podcast where Brian has been on, I feel like we're going to have a like similar topic of discussion, but from a slightly different viewpoint, which I'm really happy about. But before we jump into that, Dave, tell everybody doc. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. Uh, Dave, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself, a little background. I actually don't know that much about you other than I've listened to your podcast for a while. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, uh, super obsessed with the whole lifting thing since I was 12, started as an overweight kid, went the opposite direction, became very, very skinny. So by the time I was a freshman in high school, I was 5'11", 130 pounds. So just like a stick uh, from there, started bulking up, got really into it. Um, but if on my channel, you know, you'll see a, kind of the journey overall of like how long that really took. I mean, even by the time I was a senior, um, I still, you know, I gained 30 pounds, but I was still relatively skinny. So it was just a very long process. And just probably because I'm so goal driven, the more that I wasn't getting the results that I wanted, the more obsessed I became, it started going more and more down the rabbit hole. So, uh, it was kind of good timing because when I finished my residency, I was thinking, well, like I have some more time now, what can I do to kind of be as involved? And, you know, I don't know how it was for you, but for me, there was a big lifting crew within university and then you leave university and it's just kind of different. And so, you know, I, I've been listening to people in this space for a long time. I was like, well, I could start a podcast. Uh, it kind of started as like a charity project. I figured, well, if nobody listens, it'll still at least do some good there. But thankfully, people have listened. Uh, and so we just kept going with that. We're up to, I think, 185 episodes now. Uh, and so, yeah, it's been great. Like a lot of people ranging from powerlifters, bodybuilders to doctors and everything. So pretty broad topics. You, you mentioned charity there. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So it started with every episode I would donate to the charity of choice of the guest. And so I still do that. Although now I do more donations, just kind of the ones I choose. Uh, but initially it was always just what the guests wanted. And, and then I've kind of just taken on more of it myself at this point. That's awesome. Making me feel like shit here. We got to start donating some shit to charity. I love that. That's awesome, dude. That's a good, that's a nice motivator. I think I selfishly started the podcast to just like talk to people that I wanted to talk right. to. And I was like, come talk to me on my podcast so I could learn. But yeah, it's been a fun journey. How, how long you, you said in like the 180 episodes, how long you been doing it? Yeah. So we started, I, I remember when I first thought about it and I had yeah, actually funny, I was just going over goals and I just found a word document from 2014 on video ideas. And I never really did anything with it because for me, the idea of having to do YouTube videos all the time just seemed draining. It's like, okay, maybe I have 50 videos in mind and then I don't want to have to just make the same content. Whereas a podcast, it's like, there's always people to talk to. There's always new topics. Like I just found that very interesting. So it was the summer of 2018, like pretty much two months after I finished my residency, I started to run a practice in South Carolina at the time. And it just came to me. And so I was super excited about the idea. You know, I don't know how it was when you started your podcast, but the first week I'm like barely sleep. I, I've got like 10 hours of content I want to do. And then uh, now it's a much more normal, like one or two videos a week. Right. But it's, it's been very consistent. So we're going on four years now. That's awesome. No, I was, mo I'm a COVID baby in terms of like not actual COVID baby, but like a lot of the impetus <laughs> of like content creation was totally spurred by I'm home 24 seven. Now at the time COVID mm -hmm. hit, I was an in-person personal trainer. Um, and well, I was doing a little hybrid at that point, but whatever COVID was the thing that was like, okay, cool. I guess you're going like full a hundred percent online. And part of that was like, I would definitely want to start a podcast. So yeah, it's yeah. In, uh, in a similar way. Just, it, it was something that I was like, started with like a ton of episodes in the beginning. Like not that I think I'm at literally one per week on average since the beginning mm -hmm. of time, which is definitely something I want to keep up with. But what are you, what are you doctor of by the way? Like what so do you, what do you degree, do? Yeah. So I'm a dentist. So doctor of dental surgery cool. is the degree. Cool. Awesome. And you're, so you're a practicing dentist. Yes. Yeah. That's I'm actually in my office. Now. Do, you, do you also coach people in any fitness space at all? And do you, 
Yep. Yes. I mean, I've coached people for a long time. Um, obviously starting the podcast a few years ago, it, it really picked up after that. Um, but I mean, really even since high school, I was just kind of unofficially helping people. And then I started actually coaching people in college. And then now I've just been regularly coaching people. Is that a part of your business businesses that you're trying to grow more of a passion project, something in the middle? Yeah, just a passion project. I mean, total of like everything that comes from all of this is like one or 2% of my income. So it's really not something that it's like I focus on. It's just, if I still enjoy it, I do it. If somebody comes to me and it's like, you know what, this is going to be more stress than it's worth. I I just send them. And you know, there's obviously a lot of great coaches out there. So I have kind of like a list of people who I would send to. Yep. That's cool. That's awesome. Let's, uh, let's pivot. We're going to chat today about some nerdy hypertrophy shit, most likely, but just, just some of the stuff that I don't know. I was going to start, I was like, I've been thinking, Oh, XYZ has boomed in the last certain amount of years, but a lot of this stuff has been a long time coming, just comes in waves. Like somebody will pop up and make some crazy polarizing stuff. And then we'll kind of get to a bit more of a nuanced place. Then it quiets down a little bit. And I, it, it, I think of Kaz as like this, you know, Coach Kasim as like this person who's like made biomechanics cool again or made it like a t- hot topic of conversation. But that, you know, it wasn't the first person to do that. But let's pretend like he was and just say, hey, we've been, you and I been exposed to like a lot of the same information over the years. You know, we've, we've looked at like the N1 stuff and, you know, you had uh, what's his face on the podcast. The other guy who wrote a book on biomechanics that, that Kaz ended like up Brignoli. debating. Yeah, Brignoli. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we've been exposed to a lot of the same like new information in air quotes in training and biomechanics over the last five years. And I'm curious, again, because you are coaching and you're training yourself and, and how how has some of that, I know I'm being quite general with what that information is. We could stick with the biomechanics side of things for now. But how has that affected or not affected your training and coaching for yourself and clients? Yeah, so if I'm being honest, I don't think the recent discussion on biomechanics has changed much for me at all. Um, I would say, generally speaking, and something I've, I've mentioned on the podcast, is that the more you do this, obviously, the less you learn per time, right? So the first year, everything is new. And eventually, you know, you're doing this for 20 years and it's like, well, I learned something here and there, but it just kind of adds to it. But I do think it's very easy to think, well, nothing's new. And then you kind of forget, well, actually in the last five years, I have learned this and this and this. So I don't want to say I haven't learned anything recently because you're always learning more. I think it's just much more subtle. Um, But in terms of biomechanics, like I can't say I've taken anything I don't want to say anything, but you know, like Doug Brignoli, he kind of had interesting viewpoints on some things. I think Cass, maybe a little bit more. I've taken some things, but I don't think it changes the main principles because the reality is most of the people I coach are not advanced bodybuilders. They're beginner intermediates. And I just don't think that they should be spending too much time focusing on that at the expense of things like progressive overload and sleep and nutrition. And obviously like Cass wouldn't disagree with that either. I'm sure he would still say those are super important, but I think it's more likely when Brian Borstein stage where it's like, okay, nothing's really going to happen unless you do something dramatic and let's just see. And so then I think it makes sense to kind of tweak some of these things. What I always get like not caught up on, but where I kind of want to make sure that I play my own devil's advocate is when you, when I say what you just said, where it's like, Hey, I don't want to see people, you know, uh, so caught up in, you know, the level of a deduction of their arm to bias the costal pec on or the clavicular pec on a, on a dumbbell press that they then don't either enjoy their training as much because they're so focused on whether I, or not I'm doing this right or it comes at the cost of the bigger rocks, just like effort, consistency, you know, total number of hard sets and consistency over time and all of that stuff. The problem is that is technically a, a false dichotomy. Technically, it doesn't need to be either or. And that's like where I'm like playing my own devil's advocate because you could do both. I mean, how does I can hear people already? I won't name names. People that were like, okay, just because you need to, you know, just because you know that this exercise can or this execution pattern can help bias this muscle doesn't mean you you can't train hard. In fact, that might actually help you. Okay, I hear it. Theoretically, it's a, a false dichotomy. But in practice, in practice, I see it actually play out that way quite often. And I see it play out and you can see you can tell me if this is also what you see in the enjoyment category, which has a knock-on effect to consistency, where it's not that people then go in the gym and they don't train hard. It's that they going into the gym and there's so much second guessing of, I put it on social media and all of a sudden I have all these people critiquing it. All oh, my arm should be a, t- a little bit tucked, a little bit this. And all of a sudden it becomes not fun because the the, the feeling of competency is not there because it's like such uncertainty of if I'm doing this right. And that can actually affect consistency and a knock-on effect of like, well, I just don't enjoy this as much as I used to. And maybe over the long term, things fall out. Is that something you've seen? 
Yeah, I think so. I, I agree. It doesn't have to be either or. I just try to think of reality and, and like how people actually behave. And, you know, I hate to be the guy where it's just like, well, look at all the big guys in the gym, because I understand obviously that's flawed for a lot of reasons. But <laughs> I can think of plenty of people who have this obsession with doing it a certain way. I mean, I, there was this guy in, in college who was like this quintessential character. And, and it was just always about how to do this perfectly. And he, he even this was like well before all this stuff was as popular. And he would put out these videos on this. And it just he he didn't have an impressive physique. But more importantly, like he wasn't replicating results in many people. Um, and I just think. Uh, for most people, I tend to stick to the basics. And I know that can sound so cliche, but at least until a certain point, because again, like how many, like I, you got a pretty big following on Instagram, right? 25,000 or something like that. Like how many of those people are really at an advanced level that I need to focus on it? Now, I think for you and me, now, I don't know, how long have you been lifting? 10, 12 years. Okay. So, you know, at the 10 plus year mark, I, I do think one, I think it can matter, but two, I think it also keeps it more exciting to try things. Um, I just, I, you know, sometimes like Brian and Abel will start going and, and I'm usually very talkative in that group. And then they'll start talking to me about how to like get this specific fiber of the lat. And I just kind of zone out. I'm just like, all right, guys, like have fun with that. Yeah. And, and you, at this point, I find it the way I would describe my relationship with this new information as it comes out is, is intellectually stimulating and almost mm -hmm. that, and almost like full stop after that. Not because it lacks applicability entirely. It doesn't, it totally doesn't. Um, but I'm definitely somebody who gets like really excited about, I don't know, I'll go through waves of things that I'm really excited about learning about and then I'll go take a million courses and I get really excited about it. And every time I scroll through like old content of myself, I'm like, yep, this was my this phase. This was my like crazy reverse dieting phase where I'm like all up in the research with Trexler and that was a couple months ago. We're like really yeah. excited about debunking this stuff and having these debates and stuff. And then if I go back like two years, a year or two, you know, it's all of these like costal pec this and, you know, mm -hmm. uh, long head, short head, bicep that. And I'm, again, not irrelevant, but I just catch myself like during moments where I go in waves. So I'm really excited about it. But what's cool is ends up happening is like you go into the extreme. You get really you're like totally drinking the Kool-Aid and then you can step out and you can kind of be like, all right, like I went all in on this thing. What sorts of differences was I feeling? What sort of difference did this make for my clients? And I can come with a little bit more of a nuanced approach at the end and one of the things that I find frustrating is I don't mind if we talk about this stuff on social media. I don't mind if someone's like, hey, this is how you work the long head, short head. Um, I've had Ben Yanes on the podcast, Giannis, Ben Giannis on the podcast. And, uh, you know, he's like, social media strategy is like ultimate polarization. Like totally, this doesn't work that. You can't do this. If you do the rope, tricep rope push down, like your elbow's going to fall off your body. Um, mm -hmm. And I find the one thing that I that I get bothered by is a lack, not with just I'm not, I'm not picking on his content. I just mean this general discussion of like is a lack of like um, uh, at the end of everything you say, I need you to tell me and your following and everyone else listening where this falls in the hierarchy of importance. Like it's cool for us to talk about it, but please put an annotation somewhere of like this is in the fucking zero point zero zero one percent of stuff that's important after all of this stuff. And the problem is that that makes your content seem less important. And so nobody mm -hmm. does that. And so it's just like, hey, sure. if somebody come at, comes at me in the comments and they're like, well, this is more important, they might be like, yeah, you're probably right, but it's never upfront. And so nobody's figuring out, nobody has this picture of the hierarchy in front of them. And so they just like don't know what is most important. This is one thing that bothers me. Yeah, well, I'm smirking because you're, you're preaching to the choir because it's just something I talk about all the time. And it's, it's you know, if you listen to the podcast, you probably heard me bring this up with respect to genetics, but it's like, I'm not expecting people to every time they put out content say, you know, asterisk, by the way, the reason that I have 30 pounds more muscle than almost everybody else is because I have superior genetics, right? Like I don't expect them to keep saying that, but it's like, I harp on it because it's like, that is the difference between this person and you, you know, your perfectly done execution is not the difference between 30 pounds of muscle. It's probably not even the difference between five pounds of muscle. I mean, even Brian has said that if he, he, I mean, I don't know if I agree even to this extent, but he said that if he had just focused on progressive overload and just did max OT from college to now, there'd be probably be a difference in like injuries and whatnot. But if just from a total size standpoint, he'd be at 99% the same level. And I think it's probably close to that. I, I think it, whatever, maybe it's 95, 98, whatever percent it is, it's close enough. And I think that, as you mentioned, social media, it's just, it's so polarizing and it's so 
you know, you're, you're only going to get that way, but I, I feel embarrassed for some of these people who are like 40 plus year old content, um, content creators, and they're doing these silly TikToks and everything. And it's like, yeah, but that's, that's what works, I guess. Right. I mean, you know, I just, the whole thing is just not like my type of stuff. So I understand that I would just never have this massive following because that's, I'm not a very polarizing person. The more I think about like, okay, so if we're talking about like overarching uh, discussion here of like improving exercise execution based on what you want to work from a however granular you want to get muscle division of the division of a muscle etc how important is that and I, I actually think that I want to talk about this like I know Brian is coming out with the podcast on his uh, about just like his more like nihilism that he's been feeling lately and I find that to be like such a fun interesting discussion this idea that I guess we'll go into today because I've heard you just all of you guys talk about this a little bit of like do we all just end up in the same place anyway um and the, the two things I would say when this the exercise execution uh and exercise selection based on maybe muscle fiber or, or muscle division uh, accuracy where it becomes a little bit more important to me I think is a little bit maybe is injury prevention from an orthopedic perspective maybe there's like certain exercises that again maybe that we're blurring like exercise selection from like ability to precisely hit certain fibers but whatever this like this like boom, booming of different exercise selection and execution and biomechanics we'll just bucket all of that um is from an injury prevention standpoint because like you said max ot like maybe you're just like my elbows and my elbows are fucked after you know like this all this mm -hmm. barbell work a little bit higher volume whatever um but between that and again injury prevention so to me it's like if you're flexing a little bit lower volume approach i think okay if i'm gonna do less stuff then exercise selection as a general general like bucket becomes more important and then also from an injury prevention sort of side of things if i'm gonna be lifting for the next 20 years then i really need to focus in on this um but being so precise on it yeah sure i think that maybe we take it a little far but those are the two contexts as i come into the period of my life where i'm definitely gonna train with less volume and I want to spend less time in the gym. And so if I'm bringing time down, then efficiency has to come up and exercise selection might be one of those things that I look just a little bit closer at. Does it change a ton? Maybe not. I don't know. Is that something that, you know, what, how's your approach to like how, uh, how much volume and time I want to spend in the gym and, and how much other stuff becomes important? Has that changed? Yeah. So, and this is where I think it's, it's hard because I think ego plays a part a little bit. So if you were the gym guy and that was kind of your identity, so it, you're maybe familiar with my calf experiment. So for people who don't know, for the last probably actually close to three years now, maybe two and a half years, I have only trained my right calf. So I've done no left calf training. And this has ranged from three sets per week up to 20 sets per week. And then, you know, everybody's got their little BS calf secret. You got to stretch and you got to contract and all this. Right. And they are to the 16th of an inch, exactly the same size. No difference whatsoever. And, you know, I do some basic cardio. I train my legs otherwise. So you could say, oh, that's maintain, maintaining the size. So it's like, if that's all it takes, then what are we even doing here, right? Why are you even training then? <laughs> if, if you could just bike, you know, a few miles and, and maintain your leg size. So um, now I do think calves are maybe a particular example. But my point is that the only reason, like logically, it's like, well, then why don't you just stop at this point? Nothing's going to happen at year four. I didn't have, and, and I guess that's where, there's just the inquisitive nature I have as well as an ego of, I could just imagine if I just stopped training entirely, I'd be, I don't know. I, I would just not like the giving up nature of it, I suppose. And the same thing, I think you could logically say, well, once you've been lifting for 10 plus years, you're going to be able to maintain all of it and all the bone mineral density benefits and all these things with two days a week, maybe, but I think there's other benefits to doing it. And so right now I, I do usually a full body or an upper lower split three, sometimes four days a week. Um, but I, but I think rationally speaking for most people, you can probably be fine on three days a week, maybe even two days a week, but certainly three days a week, and then just have more time for other things. I think just, again, it's hard for somebody like me to let go of that and to not at least try. I mean, I'm always trying when I go to the gym, which is probably a misconception by some people who hear the podcast thinks that I'm just fine with maintenance. It's like, look, I'm still trying. I am just against my own will maintaining, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but I, but I do think at some point it's like, yeah, you know, you got to realize that maybe six days in the gym, two hours at a time, isn't the best use of your time. And, and again, orthopedically things will wear down faster. Yeah. I'm, I'm speaking at a conference on minimalist training. And so it's been, a, a, it's been a massive passion of this, like, diving into the literature of how little we can do and then experimenting on myself and and seeing you know what other knobs we have to turn up if we're going to bring down like time spent in the gym and we could circle back around to that brian and i beat that one to to death but i want to talk a little bit more about the calf experiment and just like 
the importance of taking generalizations and doing some form of n of one experiments. And and I will pre I will put a little preface here of like what my opinion on that is that I think that for the average person, it's probably okay for you to take the average recommendations. Or, or what I would maybe further say is that I don't know, man. I don't want people to get lost in assuming that they're a special butterfly. I want people to accept that chances are they're average at, in most in most genetic things and how they respond to a certain amount of volume and how they you know would grow from certain muscles or for, uh, from certain exercises. But you know, you did this. You have been doing this calf experiment. I've heard you talk about the importance of like practicing doing things on your own n of one sort of style, like practicing certain strategies on yourself and seeing how you respond. Could you maybe speak to that a little bit? And you can kind of give us a breakdown of the calf experiment. And honestly, I know Brian's doing his one arm experiment, but like, mm-hmm. how the fuck, do we reconcile that? How do we reconcile? You've been training one calf yeah. for six. You know, let's be totally honest. Like, you're training lower body, but like, you're not really training the function of the calf at all. Maybe when you do like leg, uh, like knee flexion stuff that you're training the gastroc in a length of position when you do the first degree, 15 degrees. It's like, is that right. really enough? Well, that's the thing, but it's, and again, I, I understand that there's, you know, I had a uh, Milo Wolf on to talk about our calves more genetically predisposed and, and then other muscle groups. I would say they are, he would argue that they're not. Um, I think Schoenfeld would argue that they're not, but to me, not like, more what I, say again, not more what, they would say that they are not more genetically influenced than other muscle groups. Got you. Um, and it would take a little too long to explain here, but if you watch the Milo podcast, we can kind of get into how that could or could not be true, depending on how you define genetically influenced. So I won't you know, belabor that point here, but um, I will say that when I did an experiment with my thighs, so I did purely isolations on my right thigh and I did isolations plus some leg pressing on my left thigh and after six months there was about a half an inch difference so it did seem like despite doing adduction abduction uh, flexion and extension there was an added benefit to also incorporating the compound exercise there now i even if i didn't find that result I, i still wouldn't tell people to do purely isolation probably anyway but i'm just saying like it was just something for me to see and so uh, now I will say currently what I'm doing is I, I'm doing twice the pressing volume on my left side and uh, that has not made a difference. So even the one set on my right side compared to like two or three sets on my left has been enough to make up that difference. So that, that half inch difference is now gone. So, you know, whatever you want to take from that. But I just think like, I'm kind of just at a point where, again, it's been so long. I'm like, let me just see what happens if I do this or that. Um, I've done plenty of pull-up experiments and I just think for the average person though, like you said, most people don't need to do that. I think you should try different things, but I do think there's a reason that the popular routines and the popular recommendations are popular. I think for most people, they're fine. Um, but I do also think that if you look and I'm certainly not the first person to say this, but if you look at the actual data of a lot of these studies, it's like, well, higher frequency was better, but then there's a huge variation among people. Right. And I do think there's something to be said for trying things out and seeing how you respond um as well as maybe even during different periods of your life you know it might be that while in high school and you were sleeping all the time and you really could recover and high frequency was great and now you're 30 and you're thinking well i'm just going to go back into what i did in high school it's like well that might not work anymore and you need to again experiment with yourself and see what works i also think personality within an individual changes over the long term I think that there's a big confounding variable in my own argument for minimalist training is that a lot of the people that are preaching minimalist training are already advanced and there's a lack of like foresight. And what I mean is that like, I I am in deep on that discussion. I'm going to ask you kind of more of a blunt discussion uh, question in a second, but this idea that like, okay, here's me, here's Brian, here's Berto, here's Jeff Alberts, you know, people coming out talking about, I I trained low volume. It's like, yeah, but but did you always, and you know, mm-hmm. are, are you, how much are you distinguishing growth now in these very late stages of your careers uh, when you're already super mega jacked? And is this now a personality change? Cause it's been a change in me. And I know that, you know, if I talk to 20 year old me, he's like sophomore in college, I'm clanging and banging six, seven days a week doing God knows what, how much volume, you know, it's dog shit volume. It's, it's poorly tech, uh, you know, poorly executed volume. It's probably poor exercise selection, everything wrong across the board outside of like time spent in the gym, which I'm that Mm -hmm. box I'm checking. But 
I'm in a place now where I think there are really good physiological arguments as to why I prefer a lower volume, better execution, better neurological efficiency. I can train better to failure. Uh, but there's also a time in my life mentality and an acknowledgement that maybe the difference between any gains and best gains will be negligible across the rest of my life. And so do you find that to be a confounding variable? And and I'll piggyback that I and mean, we'll just give you the longest question of all time. There's a hypothesis that like, so long as I'm doing enough stimulus beyond the threshold for like homeostasis, enough to grow at all, that I could just do that, you know, conceivably low volume training, enough volume to grow and versus, you know, higher volume, which might technically, at least in the in the short medium term, cause faster growth, that at the end of the day, I'm going to get, it's going to, both of those are going to asymptote at some point and I'm going to be reaching my, I call it a practical genetic potential because mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't, genetic potential, I, I, at some point you're gonna get to a point where the kind of amount of training or the amount of gaining, the amount, of the, what you'd have to do to keep gaining, we just don't want to do anymore. That's what I think people end up reaching. Um, so this idea of like, we all end up in the same place based on like hours spent in the gym times genetics. Yeah. So um, the first part with the personality changing over time, yeah, I think we were all like that. You know, you, you start training, you're like, what are, whatever I have to do, whatever amount of time I want to spend in there because you see the results and you get positive feedback. And so you get that dopamine hit and then it just keeps going. And I think that makes sense. I think it would be, again, almost silly to continue to do that. But I, as you mentioned with these guys who then go to minimalist training, this is something I've mentioned with Berto and other people about uh, with bulking. It's very common that people bulk early years, they get a little too fluffy. And then later they say, I didn't need to do that. I could have just stayed lean. Now I stay, you know, 10 to 12% all year round. And it's like, yeah, but you very likely could not have gained all that size, at least not nearly as quickly, but maybe not ever if you tried to stay this lean all the time. And I can't think of too many naturals who have impressive physiques who have not had periods of bulking up to 20 plus percent body fat at times. I mean, it's very rare. Um, so I think that's just another example, but with the minimalist training, yeah, it's like, yeah, because you can maintain, I don't know if I could have gotten to where I am if I had only done the three days per week, probably close. Honestly, I don't think three days a week is that ridiculously low at all, but, um, but point is still being the same. I, I think it's very easy to kind of have this amnesia of, of what was there. And then, uh, for the second part, remind me that what you said, just, aside, just, just this idea that again, if you're, if you take that three days a week approach that you would have probably yes or no ended in a very similar place, or you'd be in a very similar place as you were right now, maybe it would have taken a little bit longer time, but that you at, you're ending up probably, like if you wanna get bigger, if you wanna get noticeably bigger between where you are right now and at some point in the rest of your life, there's a list of things you have to do. Uh, gain, you have to gain weight actively, and maybe you would have the argument that you have to do a certain amount of, spend a certain amount of time in the gym. And at some point we get to a point where those are just aren't things I wanna do. I know that I'm 10 years in and I'm like, you could probably gain a little bit more muscle, like appreciable, you could probably look 10% bigger in your lifetime. But the list of things I'd have to do, I don't wanna do them anymore. So I'm at my, am I at my genetic potential? No, I'm, I'm certainly at my practical genetic potential because I have the list of things I would have to do over the time scale, I'd have to do it, I don't feel like doing anymore. And so, yeah, my question is, do you feel like most people are not talking out of their ass, but they ended up getting somewhere that they could have gotten in a multitude of different ways. And yeah, not, not that we can look back and shit on this, like, hey, I, I dirty bulked a couple of times, got you know too big, I gained too much weight. Um, but you just don't know. We just don't know if you would have gotten there. And so it's kind of a moot discussion at some point. Well, I, I think by definition, there is, is certainly a practical limit. And then, you know, despite what some people want to say, there's some genetic limit. Again, maybe you can't define that completely. I think for most people, their practical limit is noticeably below what their, we'll call a genetic limit would be. Um, however, this is again, where that kind of like ego kicks in just to clarify. Cause I remember, uh, Abel and I were on a podcast with like on the guy's name, um, two years ago, maybe a while back. And he was saying, and I understand his misconception because based on how I talk in my podcast, one might think that I'm just not trying. And he was like, well, you know, would it be worth it for you, Dave, if you had to like do this and this, if you could have gained three pounds of muscle, would you do that? And I was like, hold on, let me be very clear that I have tried everything I conceivably can under the sun to gain more. And, and you know, obviously short of just like blasting tons of gear and it's just not happening. So it's not that I have said, oh, I just don't care. It's not worth it for me. I understand for most people that is the case, but that is not the case. I've bulked up to over 220 pounds did a two year bulk 
and then t- took almost a year to cut back down. But that was after, you know, 14 years of lifting only to end up at the exact same 190 that I was before. Same measurements, same strength, everything. So I gained 30 pounds, even though it was way fatter than I, you know, again, needed to be. But it just stopped netting things. Um, I recently, about a year ago, went with Revive Stronger for coaching. Again, just to see what would happen. Volume was basically doubled, went back from intermittent fasting, went back to 14 plus hours per day. I was eating, increased calories obviously focus on progressive overload, all of that. I looked and then after six months together and then cutting back down, the pictures were, if anything, a little bit worse than before. Uh, strength was no better. Uh, strength may be slightly worse or the same. And and I've said many times, this is not hating on, on their coaching. I think they're great. I just think there's a point where it just doesn't happen. So that's where I say, well, why am I going to literally do over twice as much volume and twice as many days in the week or twice as many days in the gym per week it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but I do think for most people, yes, that maybe they probably could gain three, four, five pounds more muscle if they wanted to, you know, put themselves in a hyperbolic time chamber and really dedicate a, a ton to it. Yeah. I, I'm I'm curious to, yeah, we look at the show and fell 2017 research and we see people growing from like crazy, crazy low volumes, mostly untrained people. And I think that there's probably a threshold in which from a newbie to an intermediate that like volume requirements go up. Um, but this idea that they go up like linearly across the lifespan, across the training career is just like highly unlikely. Um, and in in my experience, they've actually gone down at, at some point, but, but then I say that and I'm like, yeah, but you haven't really grown. Like, how do you know? Like you're certainly Mm -hmm. that there's a very small difference. It feels like these days between your, between maintenance volume and best gains, which is another way of saying that gains are just mega, mega small, no matter what. And so I just think about those people who were, were training with like moderate volumes in that study with like five to nine sets per, per muscle group per week and tr- getting like really nice 84% of the available gains. I'm just curious, what if those people put themselves on that program for life versus the group that was doing 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week, also untrained, and they also put themselves on that for life? Like, do those people end up looking any different? What's the time scale in which they reach the, the, a certain point where they get to a point where practical gains aren't really relevant you know, does the, what that five to nine sets per muscle group per week, does that actually eventually become maintenance volume for somebody? Um, or, you know, as execution and neurological efficiency, as those things go up, ability to train close to failure, you know, maybe other factors, recovery factors go up that you could, you could reach the same point in a different time. Um, I, I believe the answer is yes. I think like you said, three, three days a week, if you train three days a week hard for 10 years, I think I look exactly the same as I do now. I think that though, I don't know that to be the case. I also did a two year bulk and I also got to 220 and I'm also now 190. Um, mm. And and I agree, I, I, I look back on those two years and I think, wow, that was like most productive two years of muscle building. I look back two years later, which is where I am maybe right now. And I'm like, was it like, was it? The, mm-hmm. the one thing I will say, I guess, I guess this is circling back to biomechanics is, the irony of like the kind of tongue in cheek Kaz, like nobody trained their their iliac lats until Kaz. Like my iliac lats are the only muscle on my body that have grown a significant amount in the last few years that I notice any difference on. And so that is like mm-hmm. been a hat that I've hung on a little bit uh, of like this ability to bias a certain division, which I don't think anybody's arguing, but like how big of a difference it makes for this one context, I feel like it has made a difference. But I'm just toying with that that idea because I am somebody who's like would much prefer people to use fitness to live their happiest life. And if you could end up in the same place in 15 years, or you could get there in 12 years, but train hundred percent extra, then I think most people would take the first route of like, all right, I get there in 15 years and I'll train three days a week instead of fucking five times a week. We just don't know that for sure. I'm just really looking to like kind of consolidate that argument and and see how I feel about like what the end goal or end result would be of that. I I think there are different points to be made though, because the one topic is volume and is doing all this volume going to be that helpful. And that's something that I I don't believe. And not, I mean, for most people, I do think there's probably a range that they will grow. And I do think it's worth testing out. So I'm definitely not trying to say everybody's going to get the same results from everything. I just don't think that, you know, if, if you were doing effective exercises and you were putting yourself with progressive overload and calorie surplus, no, I don't think that 20 sets is going to do something magical that 14 sets didn't do. However, you're specifically talking about these like iliac lats. Presumably you did that with a different movement. I do think that there is something to be said for exercise selection, particularly with the back, which is, you know, obviously made of many muscles. And, and that is seems to be a, a difficult area for certain people, right? Like with calves, it's like, look, if you have stubborn calves, you have stubborn calves. There's not like some secret calf exercise. It's a very basic 
thing, right? But if you have like a, let's quote unquote a weak back, that could be due to a lot of different things and maybe certain muscles there are taking over. Um, one example I'll give is I never trained my neck until 2017. Now I obviously don't have a super thick neck. However, it is one inch thicker than it used to be at the exact same body weight. So that was because I started directly training it and it really got pretty much no real stimulus before that directly. Um, there are other examples, like I think, uh, Greg Knuckles and Eric Trexer had some article on, muscles that don't get trained much, like maybe like the uh, hip flexors and whatnot. Like there's probably some things that you're not training directly that maybe get, could get some stimulus. Now, a counter example would be forearms. If I directly train my forearms a ton, I don't get any additional growth, but presumably they're getting enough stimulus from everything else. So I think exercise selection can be important. The, 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 what the thought that comes to mind for me is like, okay, well then that group that I'm, I'm thinking, okay, they're training three days a week with let's say moderate volume versus a group that trains with higher volume. Like if, if the group that's training with moderate volume is finding that over the, over that 10 year period that they're able to progressively overload, which we'll talk about the issues with that over a 10 year period. Like if someone's like, all right, well, how much volume is enough to grow? How do I know I'm growing? How do I know that what I'm doing is like permissive? It's enough for growth. And I'd say, yeah, man, strengthen the hypertrophy rep range with more hypertrophy based movements over the long term is probably a darn good proxy. I think if you're met, if you're keeping roughly similar body shape, then like in terms of like, like recomping, I guess you could do measurements. It's hard to do measurements like during a gain phase. You don't really know if you're gaining fat or what. Um, but I feel like if, the, if those people training with moderate volumes are, you know, if someone's like, Hey, I'm five years in training, I've been training three days a week. I'm getting bigger. Do you think I'll keep getting bigger if I train like this? Or do you think there's like a lot of room for me to get more gains? It's like, well, I think that the point in which you could you should even just remotely begin to consider if you even if you need more sets, which I think would be not the first line of defense here is like, are you not progressing anymore in these hypertrophy lifts, you know, without too much variation so that you're not just like jerking yourself to neurological gains. Um, but what do you think about that? If someone's like, hey, I'm I'm, you know, well, first of all, what do you think about strength in the hypertrophy rep range over the long term being, uh, uh, you know, outside of you know, direct muscle biopsies and stuff being a decent proxy for growth. And if somebody is doing that three days a week, should they be worried at all that they're missing out on something? I think that that is still one of the most important measurements personally. Um, I think that the industry is full of people who, for some reason, don't want to either take muscular measurements or look at their progressive overload on core lifts over time. And I, I almost just have to wonder if it's just a cope so that they can't totally. necessarily see that they're not making progress anymore. And it's like, if you really are so confident that your arms have grown because of this, or this just pick up the tape measure. It takes two seconds and measure it. And I understand there's variation and everything, but like I, I've measured my arms over a thousand times since I was 12 years old. I'm very precise when I do it. Now, certain things like thighs, and that's pretty hard. And there's also a huge body fat component to it. But I, and I'm not saying it's flawless, of course, but I'm saying if, if you're like, explain to me, if you have the same waistline and the same body weight and the same muscular measurements and the same strength, how you've progressed, like how have you gained muscle if none of those things have changed? Because if, if you have progressed, you should have more contractile tissue, which should be able to contract at a greater force and you should be stronger. Now, I understand that it's hard to compare, like Brian's brought this point up. You maybe don't do the same lifts. That's fine. But I personally believe, and this is another thing he and I have discussed, that the neurological adaptation to a lift is a lot longer than a lot of people think it is. Uh, some people say, oh, it's just a couple of weeks. I have gained on new exercises for months without actually growing. And while other exercises for the same muscle groups have not progressed at all, like months and months. So I think it's very tough when you not, not to say you shouldn't switch out exercises, but just to say that when you do switch out exercises, it can be very hard to say that the strength gains are from actual progress. Um, and then as far as the, there was one other comment somebody had made and it was just to say like, well, yeah, but you know, we, we talk about, it's like every other article I see is like, well, it's not just about progressive overload. There's other ways to progress. So you can do this. You can reduce your rest times and all these other things. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, yeah. or just the comment that like, well, what are you going to do after 10 years? You can't just keep loading. You can't just keep adding load to the bar. You're right. 
And you also just can't keep growing. I think it's proportional. So you're you're trying to come up with all these other methods of quote unquote progress, but I don't think they're any better. I think you're just masking the fact that you're not really progressing anymore. And if you were, you'd be stronger in the rep ranges. Um, um, you are, we are preaching the choir hundred percent. This is like, I run a group with over 700 people who want to get better at hypertrophy, get better hypertrophy, but, and balancing the like, uh, fun and enjoyment factor of novelty with like a real, real deep core belief that we should be keeping things more the same on average for best gains and not just for best gains, like you, like, and you know, but also like you said, for best ability to assess gains, um, that to me is like a, not a struggle, um, but people will come to the group and be like, oh, we're doing, you know, today at four o'clock, I go over my new mezzo with the group and, you know, it's like 75% the same. And, you know, not that I'm, again, not that there's a struggle, there's a big uproar about that. I actually love that people join the group not realizing how important that is and then actually start to love the fact that there's the same stuff. They're like, well, I'm just getting in the groove with this. Like, let's figure out what fucking weight to use after two mesocycles, you know? Um, you know, how to, how to exercise, you know, figure out the setup and all of that. And so I'm certainly in that camp. You know, I actually, the only, you know, you, I don't know if you inspired uh, Brian to do like some N of one stuff, but he inspired me to do some N of one stuff. And the one experiment that I did most recently was I ran the exact same program for six straight months, actually six straight mesocycles. So it was like eight months. Um, and basically coming up with this idea of like, okay, why would I change a lift? Physiologically speaking, what would be a physiological reason why I would change a lift? only two reasons. One is like a legitimate plateau, which I think is an interesting one to talk about. The other one would be like a joint pain. It's like, all right, maybe I need to like change the angle of where I'm moving. So that just to alleviate some joint pain. The well, only don't forget number three, muscle confusion, right? You got to confuse yeah, the hell out Yeah, exactly. Of it. Right. So that, well, that would be the first one of like how to break through a plateau um, is to change an exercise, which, I, which again, we'll get to. But the only other reason you would change something is emotionally you, you for motivation's sake, you're just like really sick of doing this. Um, so we have physiological two reasons. One, you an actual plateau of like, I've actually adapted to this exercise, uh, which I think is very theoretical. And then the second one would be, okay, I have an actual joint pain and, and switching this movement around might actually give some alleviation. And the second one, the other point would be just emotionally. And I knew 100 kajillion percent that I would not run into a physiological reason. I would run into a purely emotional reason to want to change a movement. And the whole point of the exercise, uh, the, uh, the, the, whole point of this this trying this out was to just shun that for a second to like put away the emotional reasons and say when am I going to run into a physiological reason to, to stop and it was a fascinating experience six mesocycles in a row I did not not PR on any single movement and yes how much I PR'd mezzo to mezzo went down over time totally but I didn't not PR on something. And actually what I end up thinking happened was it's not that I was getting less and less gains is it was becoming a clearer and clearer picture of the actual gains that might be happening, which are microscopic. So it's not like I was getting a ton of gain in the beginning when maybe I added 10 pounds to a lift. And now it's six mesos later, I'm adding two pounds to a lift. It's that I was probably always adding some proxy of muscle mass rep, you know, correlating to two pounds on the, on the bar. I was always doing that. Or maybe I'm still not doing that. It's even less than that. But it was, to me, it's not that I would have plateaued on the lift. It's just, it would have gotten closer and closer to only putting weight on the bar at the rate in which I was putting on muscle to some degree, or those lines would have gotten closer to closer together. And at some point I literally hit an emotional wall. It's like, I'm not going to the gym. I fucking hate doing all of this. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that sort of idea of like keeping things the same, kind of removing this neurological mask of what's going on. And and it just was like, I was like, I'll PR on something and, and not to beat this to a horse, but I took all the N1 courses, everything that they have to offer and their discussions of periodization are incredibly uh, intellectually stimulating. This idea that you would have to shift stimulus because your body will start to adapt to a certain stimulus, and that's where you you have put this actually really well for me. It's been a fun monologue for me right now. Of like, I actually feel like I wasn't losing trainability. They would call it that I wasn't adapting less. It's just that I was. It was. It was starting to look more and more like what actual progress, muscle mass wise, looks like. Really fucking slow. Yeah. Yeah. I think. And just to be clear for people listening, I am not against exercise variation. 
Uh, studies support that exercise variation is beneficial. Uh, again, orthopedically, there's benefits to it. From, from a pure hypertrophy standpoint, there's benefits to it. What I am saying is that the constant switching of exercises is not necessarily beneficial and masks the fact that you're maybe not actually progressing. If anything, it actually maybe increases the fact that you're not progressing, right? Because you just keep having that neurological adaptation. Um, I actually had a discussion with somebody about this and it's tough to have this in writing because they just, it's hard to get some things across some concepts. But basically my argument was like, let's say you're doing an incline dumbbell bench press and you use the hundred pound dumbbells for 10 reps and then you get 11 reps and then you get 12 and 13 and then you're at 13 and you're at 13 for weeks and it just doesn't progress. So then you switch to some hammer strength machine and that progresses for six months and whatever. And then that pauses or that stalls. When you go back to the incline dumbbell bench press, you might be a little bit weaker because you're not used to it anymore. And that's fine. If you then get, let's say 11 and then 12 and then 13, and then you get to 14 because maybe you had a break, you come back to it, great, real progress. But if you never beat that 13 times 100 again, I would argue that you haven't made any real progress. You switch things around and you're convincing yourself your progress, but nothing's actually happening there. Now, again, most muscle groups I do think should have some variation. I just don't think the constant switching uh, is that beneficial to muscle growth. Now you made a good point, which is the emotional aspect of it, because certainly from like a stimulation standpoint, it's way more fun, I think, to try new exercises. And there's even an argument to be made for doing that when you're at the point that you're not progressing that much. I just had, um, the, if you know, vigorous Steve, he, uh, he's the one who kind of exposed liver King and he let out the emails and everything. And so, um, I'm releasing a podcast with him soon. And we, he was just saying like, you know, he's, you know, he's enhanced and he's much smaller than he used to be. And so he mentally, it would just be problematic to try to focus on progressive overload at, at this point. Cause it's like, you're 30 pounds lighter than you used to be. It's you're not going to be stronger. So he just has fun with it. When I go on vacation, I like to lift, but I just have fun with it. Um, so, and, and frankly, like next week, I'll probably switch out an exercise because it's just been the same thing every single time, but I'm not switching it thinking, well, now I'm going to have some new stimulus. And now finally the shoulders are going to grow more, you know? Yeah, I think we end up with mostly emotional reason to change things, which is a super valid reason. We're not sure. I mean, it's super duper valid. I, I'm, I'm all for acknowledging that as a real thing. I think that if I had to pick one variable that would link together all of the people that have made great muscle growth, it would be time consistently year after year, lack of injuries. And so, uh, you know, if you, if you can, if this keeps you in the game, keeping some things different or changing some things, I'm, I'm all for it. I acknowledge that that is important. I do it in the group. You know, I always tell people I keep most things the same and then I sprinkle some spice on it and we just change it up enough to keep that intellectual stimulation going. Um, yeah, I find that, that hammer strength chest press interesting. Um, one of the things that I also think is interesting, actually I asked Brian and he was like, yo, you gotta ask him, you gotta ask him something about this. Um, and is this idea that, well, I'll pivot, I'll pivot to that in a second. This, I, some people will like look at, um, I'll be coaching somebody one-on-one -on -one and we'll use like an Excel spreadsheet and then we'll look at what they did in week one and they'll look at what they did in week five. And a lot of people, if they think that those numbers are drastically different, they're like, oh my God, I added 50 pounds to my, my barbell row or whatever this mesocycle. And then six months from now, they're like, I added five pounds on my barbell row. A lot of times what I think is that or they're like, wow, three months later, I'm not doing, you know, all right, so the, the, your example of, well, I'm, I'm doing the dumbbell press and I hit 13, I hit a wall, or, you know, oh, you look back two months and you're like, wow, I'm doing the same weight that I used to do. Something that's difficult to reconcile is improvement in execution, improvement in tempo, or improvement in tempo, slower tempo, maybe added a pause, maybe just going with a larger range of motion. I'll have people all the time, they're like, I haven't progressed in three weeks. First of all, that ain't shit. Um, but a lot of times it's not about, I mean, yeah, I think over the long term you have to progress in weight and load. Fuck this like, oh, you could rest a little bit less or, you know, your technique improved this week. It's like, yes, but if you're progressing over the long term, weight and reps are going to be going up and they are in the vast primary of things you should be using to assess and uh, like implement in terms of pursuit of progressive overload. But maybe talk to this idea of like how it's difficult or at least this idea of how ex changes in execution over time can make assessing progress a little bit more difficult. Sure. It, this is one that Brian wanted you to ask me. Is that yeah, what you said? Yeah, okay, yeah. that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. yeah. Also, I am going to take credit for his uh, one arm experiment. I'm pretty sure he can correct me down below in the comments, but I'm pretty sure I inspired that. So I think um, so. Too. So 
So, you know, obviously it is common for people to even try to go the opposite direction too, right? So maybe you're lifting with decent form and over the weeks, your form gets worse and worse, right? Because you want to, you're so focused on progression. So my recommendation is to always use as awful of form as possible. So it can never get any worse and never get confusing. It's awesome. Uh, Just kidding for the people who have just listened to audio and can't see my smirk. So um, I I think that it's a very valid point. and, And most people do not start day one with perfect form. Right. And, and that's very valid. And and even for me, you know, something that I like to do sometimes is I'll use my first set kind of as a, how much can I get? And you could easily argue that's for ego and it, it probably is, but it's fun to me you know, like maybe overhead press when I went for 225, it's like, okay, that maybe wasn't the perfect prettiest form. And then I'll back off and then I'll do maybe like five sets or five reps of 185 with strict form. Right. And I just kind of like to do that because I can see how much I can get. I think if you're changing over years, it is tough. And I I think that's kind of the reason I said I'm not surprised because I think Brian has brought that stuff up. Like his execution is so different now from when he was in his CrossFit days, for example. Um, I'm not sure if I have a great remedy for that other than just to hope that over time you're doing the new improved form long enough to then make assessments, which again, takes a while. I mean, even a, just a different form can take a while to actually truly adapt to. Um, and it, it does make comparisons hard. And uh, it's something that you just have to, that, that's why I still like basics at time, assuming you're still in a, a phase where you're really trying to progress. Like I still do pull-ups, but I understand that not everybody can do pull-ups for, you know, 20 years injury free. And then, and then it does kind of muddy the waters, which it's probably what happens a lot in the natural bodybuilding community. I mean, most of the guys, like the 3DMJ guys and everything, like a lot of them are doing different exercises than they used to, not all of them, um, but a lot of them. And it, it just makes it more confusing. And short of having like, you know, a way to test, like do like muscle biopsies or like ultrasound or anything or DEXs constantly, it, it really makes it tough. Um, and that's where I think measurements are also helpful uh, and like caliper measurements, uh, just like tape measure measurements, things like that. But it, it does like that's why you need multiple forms. And then I guess the last thing I'll comment on is pictures, which um, I do kind of hate on pictures a lot of the time. And it's not that I don't think they're valid. I definitely think they're valid. I just think it's incredibly difficult to have identical pictures and have the exact same circumstances because of just like food differences and and water balances and lighting differences and flex versus pumped. I mean, I'm sure we've all taken pictures even on the same day where it's like, how is this even the same person? So it's, it's very difficult. I I think to assess with pictures, especially over a short time scale. I don't even think there's a, I don't not So I I was going to say, I don't think there's a remedy. I'm sure there's a remedy. Like you said, it was like, all right, just like, to me, the big remedy is acknowledging that this is a thing and taking it with a grain of salt into the other factors that you can say, all right, actually, my in a directional sense, I am moving forward, even if this hasn't changed in, you know, I'm, I always tell people, like, I'm pressing a similar amount on my, like, you know, let's say, like, my 60, my shoulder presses than I did probably in college. But if you take a, a, a video of that, it was just like dog shit technique, terrible range mm-hmm. of motion, no control yeah. of the eccentric, like, butt in the air, fucking ton of leg drive, probably some jack dude spotting me. And it's like, just just acknowledging that there's, this is a variable that does muddy the waters a little bit. And that usually what helps is an objective look at your technique, if that has approved, improved, but also zooming out over the long term. You know, every time your technique changes, just say, hey, this is no longer exactly apples to apples. Like you were doing it with the Smith machine even, and now you're doing it with the barbell. You were doing it with one dumbbell, one hand, ipsilateral, and now it's contralateral. And it's like not apples to apples. So just, just for me, the remedy is acknowledging that that's a variable. I'm not, not so sure how I feel about this next statement, but when I have a somebody who's like, wow, I'm really hitting a wall with an exercise or like I'm really getting to that point where it's like 11, 12, 13, 13, 13. I'm not saying that I that I want to pursue that as an end in and of itself, but to me it is more likely the case that that's a good sign that you are training consistently really hard. Like for me that that, that checks the box that shows me that you are training hard enough that you're pursuing progression that you've actually hit this asymptote where things have slowed down. If someone's like 12 reps, 13 reps, 14 reps, 15 reps, 16 reps, 17 reps, that to me is more of a red flag of like, what the fuck was 12 to 15 reps? Like, was that eight RIR? Like, you know, are we, are we still on our way to hard training? If someone's like, you know, 10, 10, 10, then next week, 10, 10, 11, then the next week, 10, 11, 11, then 10, 11, 11, then 11, 11, 11, like barely adding a rep here and there, but they're fucking trying to add a lot. To me, that's more likely somebody who should 
expect to see some changes over the long term than like 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. To me, like just across a large population, that is more, that's less of me being like, wow, look at the great gains you're making. Unless you're new to training, then in then reality, those could all be above the threshold needed to make gains. And you could literally put five pounds on the bar every week for a period of time. Um, but I, I'm not, it's not like I want you to plateau, but if you're making, if you're fighting fucking tooth and nail to progress a little bit, if you've actually hit a plateau, to me that is that means that you must be fighting tooth and nail because you're trying to progress. And it is that trying to progress that in a binary sense, I find peace with. And I'm like, that's awesome. It's awesome that you're actually training hard enough consistently that you've actually reached the point where you're like fighting tooth and nail for a rep. There's probably some nuance there, but that that is kind of goes back to what we're talking about. If you're like, hey, I have a new exercise and I've never done this before and I picked 25 pounds up and by the end of the meso, I'm doing 75 pounds. Like to me, that's not like, wow, you added 50 pounds. It's like, well, the first four weeks were probably a combination of not training hard enough and neurological gains. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I had too much to add to that other than I, I agree. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so, no, I, just, I think about that because there's there's a lot of people that get discouraged with that. They're like, oh, I'm not progressing a lot. You know, I'm, I'm not seeing a lot of rep and load increases. And I'm like, that's it's probably a good sign. If you're, if you're telling me you doubled your deadlift, like I, it's more of a red flag to me. If you're like, yeah, I added one rep this whole mezzo, but I trained my balls off, trained super hard close to failure. To me, I find more peace with that. Or at least I think you're, probably at least giving the effort that is required. And, and in the other variable, I'm just not so sure. It's just a little bit less clear to me. Yeah, and, and it's tough because when you extrapolate these things out, it's really just like, what is happening over this time frame? So just an example, like Jordan, so like, what's a, a lift for you? Like maybe like a dumbbell shoulder press example. Yeah, so, uh, what am I doing for that lift? Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, 70 for eight. Okay, so if you could be guaranteed, and you've been doing this exercise for a long time, Presumably. Okay. So if, if somebody said you could within a year from now, one year from now, you'll be able to do seventies for 12. Will you consider that pretty amazing? Or would you consider that like average progress? Oh, I consider unbelievable progress. Unbelievable. I, right. That'd be unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. So, okay. So you're going to gain four reps over 52 weeks. So maybe once every 13 weeks, you add one rep. Like that is ridiculously slow. And yep. the reality is if we speak a year from now and you're the same body weight, highly unlikely you'll be doing 70 for 12, right? I mean, maybe, I don't know where you are in your progression, but I, you know, I would consider that pretty damn amazing. And I would consider like, so I had a pull-up PR. When was that? I want to say it was last year, which is pretty good after I've been doing this exercise for so long. And I did 45 pounds for 15 reps. Uh, and I, you know, that was, uh, that was summer of 2021. Because the summer of 2019, I did 45 pounds for 14 reps. So there's not a lot of people who can do a pretty good form, like full range of motion, 45 pound pull-ups for 15 reps. I'm not saying it's amazing, but it's pretty good. But it took me two years to gain one rep. And who even knows if that was neurological? Was I just doing it more, you know? And will I ever hit 16 in my life? I don't know. So... You know, you get to a point where it's just like I can switch to a thousand different back exercises and, and I can, quote unquote, progress in all of them for an ex some period of time. But if my pull ups aren't any stronger, I'm not saying pull ups effectively work every single muscle group, but that's where I do think it maybe comes down to some of this exercise selection. Like, I don't know, maybe there is some iliac portion of my lats that I can get a little bit of growth at because it hasn't been hit. But whatever the muscles are that are pretty focused on pull-ups, they're probably 99.8% there, you know? Yeah, I have people who will, so I, in my eight-month, eight, eight six-mesocycle experiment, I added about about one rep per, me, per mesocycle. That, to me, is fucking bonkers. Um, I either added one rep or, like, an, uh, you know, a similar amount of uh, load, let's say, like a small, like, maybe 5 to 10% load, let's say 5%, like, that to me, if you extrapolate, I have people in my group all the time. They're like, hey, I'm only, I only added five pounds this mesocycle. I'm like, if you do that, that's 10 pounds. That's 50 pounds a year. You do, if you do that for five years, do you add 250? Of course you're not going to do that. That's an insane amount of progress. If you added one rep to your shoulder press every mesocycle, you 10 mesocycles a year. I mean, holy shit. If you add, if you added 10 reps to your current 10 RM RDL, you will, Ridiculous. you will not do that is what I, like, like, yes, new, yeah. newbies, beginners, maybe early intermediates, which are abstract concepts in and of themselves can probably do that. But if you, if you do that for the long term, it's, 
And that's what you said. You're like, dude, four reps over a year. It's like one one rep every 13 weeks, which is like one thirteenth of a rep every week. Like it's it's indetectable almost. And so there's almost like this, like beating your head against the wall. You have to keep going in and keep trying and keep trying. And it might not manifest itself in that extra rep just yet. Um, and it might and never. If you really want to get nihilistic. Yeah. It's, it's like how much <laughs> of all these progression methods and periodization schemes are just kind of giving us something to do while that progress would have been happening anyway. Like who is to say that if you just did the same thing for those 13 weeks, that one rep wouldn't have eventually materialized anyway. And obviously we don't have studies like that because there'd be too long and nobody's doing one year study. That's that controlled. But that's what I felt when I, so I hired somebody who had worked at N1 uh, to, to coach me through their periodization. I was like, fuck me up, man. Let's fucking go. I don't need to deload anymore. I could just like go do supersets now. And it's, you know, I could just, just train the short position and all of a sudden I don't actually need a deload. Um, that's a, that's tongue in cheek there. But like, I just felt like every four weeks I was like, all right, I'm doing mechanic transduction. And the next week, the next month I'm going to do sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. And I'm like, yo, I am just jerking myself to these neurological changes, these changes, these novel changes. Like this was such drastic changes. Maybe it's the same exercise, but I was doing six by six with a 30 second rest. Then I'm doing 10, eight, eight, six, four pyramid. Then I'm doing straight sets of, you know, and then there's a tempo drop in week three. And I'm like, these are all cool mechanistically sound. You know, you can make arguments of why you're doing all of this, but I felt like there was just a huge risk in masking. And they're like, well, no, just follow the RIR. And I'm like, I know I'm good at RIR at this stage. I find myself quite good at RIR, but even as I'm quite good, I don't want to do it that often. I don't want to have to recalibrate every four weeks, let alone every week. And so that's where that that balance of trying to keep things the same, but also enough variation that people can stay doing this for 20 years without getting bored. Um, but I've found that as I become more minimalist, I, I as I do less, so coming back to this minimalist discussion, as I start to do less, I realize that if I change stuff more often, I don't have like an ability to kill it with quantity because I might be missing out and just ha getting these neurological gains, these like changes, you know, learning the movements. And normally, you you know, maybe that's subopt a suboptimal stimulus, but it feels good. If you're doing enough total sets in the aggregate, you could probably get by. But if I'm doing, right now I'm doing literally six exercises for my upper body. They need to really stay the same 90% of the time for me to not risk just getting neurological gains. Like I'm, I'm flirting with the bottom of the barrel uh, time and, and volume here. I can't risk that. Um, and so I do think what that that becomes, I'm, I'm training three, I'm training ha uh, without trying to get too uh, granular with like divisions of stuff. I'm training three presses on three different angles and three polling motions on three different angles. And that's it. No side delts, no buys and tries. So I have an, a direct overhead mm -hmm. pull. I have something in the middle and I have something basically perpendicular to the torso. And same thing for, I'm training something for like the costal pec. So a dip, or in this case, like a costal, like a costal pec cable press, something horizontal, uh, which I'm doing with cables as well. And then I'm doing an incline dumbbell press. And that's literally it. Um, and took some before and afters. We're going to see what happens. I, I, I'm three mesocycles into that. I've noticed no difference at all. Really? Um, you said you're 190 now? 190. And the, Are you maintaining weight? Maintaining weight. Uh, okay. Yep. And I'm not tracking is a variable that's, that's up in the air, obviously. Um, but I have been not tracking and staying 190 for the last two years. And so hmm. it's like at least a variable where I have some data of like, you're pretty good at staying right here within like a pound, a pound and a half. Yeah. Um, I suspect my hypothesis is that bicep and tricep size will not change. My hypothesis might be that si medial delts just aren't, they just strike me as a muscle group that doesn't get a lot of ancillary, like, uh, you know, secondary indirect volume. Just none of those motions really line up well at all with a lateral raise. Uh, so, you know, not to muddy the waters, but I told myself, yeah, if you have 20 minutes on a on a Saturday and you feel like going hitting some side delts, you'll go do that. I have yet to go do that. Um, yeah. hasn't don't happened do yet. It. Don't, don't mess up the experience. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and well, I, uh, just anecdotally. So one of my friends I've mentioned on the podcast three times, Kevin, he's got great delts, hasn't worked his shoulders since probably before college because he was a baseball player. So he's got some shoulder issues. So, uh, great cap delts. I have no cap to my delt. They're pretty decent from the side, but just no capping at all. And I literally just did presses, shoulder presses for, I don't know, the last five years, barely any laterals. Um, when I worked with Steve from Revive Stronger, we did a ton of laterals, cable laterals, dumbbell laterals. 
no difference. And again, if you look at the before and after pictures of anything, my shoulders look a little bit worse. I'm going to say it's like a significant difference, but no difference. And I actually do laterals now just because I don't feel like shoulder pressing twice a week. So I do one and one. Um, but that's just honestly just because it's it's more enjoyable to me to mix it up like that. Uh, it's, it's actually and again, that's one of those ones kind of like the calves where it's like, how? How could I be doing nothing? And the other one gets 15 sets and nothing's changed. And it's like, how can I not directly work the medial head at all with no laterals? And there's no difference. And it's just, I don't know what to tell you other than that's just my personal experience. Yeah. And what would happen if you were novice? Um, and would that novice grow their side delts in an absolute sense more than you who is not training them directly? Or would they just get them to their genetic limit of that muscle faster than you? Um, or right. would it make no difference at all? Uh, and so that's, that's certainly just like, again, and it's tricky for us. It would be great if I could like shrink myself down to day one and do these experiments again, just to, cause the magnitude would be easier to measure. It's just sure. tough to measure the difference right now. Again, I think that you've, you've given me again, a little motivation to do a little bit more measuring because I do think that across all these experiments, my body shape in terms of body weight and like real size has not changed much. So there would be merit in uh, like, I'm just mean, I don't have, I wouldn't be able to chalk up a change in it to something to like, oh, I'm up seven pounds. So there's probably some right. body fat there. Um, but that's something I could probably do more of. I photos, tricky, but have felt like I've been able to do a decent job with that in the exact same lighting, same bathroom. But you're right, changes in 24 hour dietary intake is gonna change that. It's sodium intake, you know, bowel movements, it's gonna be a ton of uh, just uh, um, variables in there that you can't really control. Um, yeah, yeah I, 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 I don't wanna get overly nihilistic. I'm trending in that direction and uh, trend in, one of the reasons I do like hypertrophy is a little nihilistic. It's a little bit of like, there are just so many ways to do it and so yeah. many ways to get really good results you know i think if you i think if you were going to leave best results as something that's up for debate but there are so many ways to progress in so many ways so many different variations of movements and um i find that to be one of the things i love about hypertrophy but then when you're talking about like this sort of stuff it's hard not to get nihilistic and i don't i don't even think of nihilism negatively i commented on uh, brian's post and i was like this is fucking awesome. Nihilism would be awesome, frankly. It, it, you know, it would put like this like optimal hypertrophy crowd like out of business, which is like something right. I'm 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 holding on to a tiny bit. Um, but frankly, I'm doubling down on it. I, I think like um, I have I have my clients who like get will get DMs from people like critiquing their form on their stories that tag me in it, and they're like, "Can't believe Jordan's letting you do this." And I'm like, "Are you fucking out of your fucking mind?" First of all, do not message my clients saying that. And second, like. Yeah, just an overblown, I don't know how I pivoted there, but like just, I feel like there's, I don't know, it's hard to see the forest from the trees, I guess, that's all. Yeah, 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 for sure, man. Cool, man, let's wrap it up. I'm taking a, a little bit over the hour, but it's super fun chat. Definitely, it was like I had an idea of where we were gonna be headed, so that was really great. We'll get you back on to talk about TRT, because I think that's something that, you've been sure. talking a lot about, which I haven't had anybody come on and talk about, so we'll have to do that. So drop a line, yeah, tell people sure. where they can find you. I'll link all the podcast stuff in the show notes. Cool. So Instagram, Dave underscore McConey, uh, brainsagainspodcast.com and brainsagainspodcast on YouTube. Cool, man. Awesome. I don't know. Uh, you had mentioned that you want to put this up on YouTube. I don't know if all of our cursing makes it up on your YouTube. It's not great for the algorithm, but uh, no, nah, it should see. be fine. Yeah, <laughs> okay. we'll put it up there. All good, man. Thanks so much for your time. All right, man. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.